0: Uh, not to become a, really, a scholar, not, not to become a, you know, a member of the profession, uh, not to go to meetings of the American Historical Association. Can you imagine anything <laughs> more deadly than to go to an annual meeting of the American Historical Association? You see? No, I didn't become a historian for that. Uh, uh, no, I, I suppose I became a historian for sort of a very modest reason. I, I wanted to change the world, you know. I thought, and uh, uh, I knew that uh, history was not objective. I knew that history was not neutral. Uh, I used to say to my classes at the very beginning, you know, that this is not going to be a neutral class. I'm. I'm going to tell you what I think, what I believe. I'm going to tell you what I think is important. Uh, and, uh, well, uh, because you can't be neutral on a moving train, that's what I would say. It became the title of my book. I use every opportunity to advertise my books, you see. <laughs> and, uh, but it's, uh, that's what I used to say to my class. You can't be neutral on a moving train. And the, uh, Well, some people have puzzled over this, you know. Some would say, hey, wait a while. You know, I've had philosopher friends challenge me, you know, oh, wait a while, I think you can be neutral. Forget it. (laughs) I I don't mean for you to analyze it. All I mean to say is that the world is already moving in certain directions. Things are already happening. Children are going hungry. Wars are being fought. Uh, In a world like this, where things are already moving in one direction, you can't be neutral. Because to be neutral, to be out of it, to be so called objective, is to collaborate with whatever is happening, whatever is going on. Uh, You don't want to do that. You don't want to be a collaborator. Uh, So I I knew, you know, from the beginning of my teaching of history and my writing of history, no, I was not going to be neutral. I was going to be not going to be objective. I knew that. Uh, you can't be objective when you're faced with an with a infinity of facts and information. You have to select out of that what you think is important. You know. And the people who select don't tell you they're selecting. They act as if this is it. You, know, you go to high school and you get a big fat history textbook and you think, Wow, this is a fat book. I guess that's all there is. You know... And, and they don't tell you what they've left out. You no, know, the, the greatest lying is not done by telling you something that's false, because you can check up on something false. The greatest lying is done by omitting things. and Then you don't know what they omitted. You know, the same thing happens with newspapers. as happens with historians and history books. You know, you get the New York Times, big fat Sunday edition, New York Times, all the news that's fit to print. No, all the news that the New York Times thinks is fit to print. But there are things happening all over the country to ordinary people that the New York Times is not printing, is not telling you about. So, yeah, from the beginning, I I was not going to teach the orthodox history. And I guess the reason for this, the reason I came to this peculiar view of history, is simply my own life experience, but I didn't. I didn't go straight through you know, high school, college, graduate school, teaching. I, I, that would be deadening. You know, I hate to say that to those of you who are doing that. <laughs> you see, <laughs> for, for those of you who are doing that, I would say get out of it. Do something else. Come back if you want, but no. Don't stay in that academic world, you know, in that closed world. Uh, I had ten years between high school and college. I became a freshman uh, at the age of at NYU at the age of twenty-seven. So I had I had these years in between, which uh, had a great effect on me. At the age of eighteen, I didn't go to work. I didn't I didn't go to college. You know, in my neighborhood, in my family kids did not go to college. I grew up in a working-class family in New York, and, and when kids reached the age of 18, they didn't go to college. They went to work. So I, I went to work. I went to work in a shipyard at the age of 18. Uh, and I worked in a shipyard for three years. And, I, and my early life, my early work life, and my, my growing up and... Uh, in the kind of environment in which I grew up it gave me what, what I would call yes, a kind of class consciousness class consciousness is something you don't hear about much in the United States you know, in the United States there's a kind of pretension that, oh, we don't have classes in the United States no, we're all one big happy family yeah, you know, and the Constitution starts off, we the people of the come on you know no, it wasn't we, the people, who established the Constitution of the United States. It was 55 rich white men who got together in Philadelphia, and they established the Constitution of the United States, you see. No. No, this, uh... No, this, uh, we had classes in this country right from the beginning. We got rich and poor right from the beginning. And, and I knew, growing up, I knew that there was something wrong with, with what I was seeing. Later on, when I was teaching at Boston University, and my students were, well, a lot of them came from, you might say, successful homes. Their parents were professionals. They were businessmen and doctors and, uh, you know, professors and lawyers. And, and, and a number of them thought... Oh, well, this is America. That's all. And they would say, we'd have, we'd have discussions in my class about class. <laughs> we always had discussions about class. And the argument always came up from some of my students. In America, if you work hard, you will make it. I knew this wasn't true. I mean, I knew this wasn't true. I knew how hard my father worked. I knew how hard my mother worked you know they didn't become rich and prosperous and successful i looked around i saw a lot of people around me working very hard i saw nurses and i saw peep janitors and i saw cleaning people i saw social workers i saw teachers i saw people working for virtually nothing you see and worked very hard and they didn't have anything and then i would see not personally because i didn't travel in those circles. But looking in the, you know, in the magazine, I say, the people who were very rich, and I couldn't tell what kind of work they did. After a while, I discovered many of them did no work at all. And very often I found out when I, I found out that they did work. I found that their work was very dangerous to the rest of us, really. So yeah, yeah I grew up in this kind of class consciousness. And when I began to study American history, I, I saw that no, this uh, this country has always had, from the very beginning, rich and poor. We want, you know, what an education we get. You know, we grow up thinking, oh, uh, the pilgrims came over. You know, everybody. And I th- that, that was the impression I had that all everybody who came over from Europe, they were all like pilgrims. They were all dressed in these funny clothes, and uh, they, you know, they were all like the same. No, no, people, there were people who came here with huge grants of land from the king. And there were other people who came here with nothing, and people who came as indentured servants. And, of course, black people came here as slaves. Right from the beginning, there was classes and class conflict. And long before the American Revolution, I mean, we had 150 years of colonial history before the American Revolution, and the history is full of riots and rebellions, of slave rebellions and of tenant rebellions and of breaking into jails to free people from uh, the those who had put them in prison and food riots, flower riots. And uh, the, yes, full of that before the American Revolution. And, but that that, you know, that's all sort of lost in, in history. You know, Instead, I mean, I don't know what you learn about. Uh, the and, and during the revolution, the class conflict continued in the revolution. We don't learn this. Uh, I bet you, don't, you didn't learn in American history about the mutinies in George Washington's army of the privates against the officers. No, the impression, I remember the impression I got was, oh, everybody... You no, know, everybody, all, patriots, you know, all fighting against England, united. You know, it wasn't that way. It wasn't that way.
1: Good evening, and I want to welcome you to VeracityRadio.com. Tonight we're going to have, I hope, what is an interesting show. First up, we're going to have a discussion with Media Matters. I had a discussion this week with Brian Frederick about the reaction after the failed car fire in New York City last Saturday night. And I had noticed that Media Matters pointed out Michael Schur, who is a, a former CIA analyst, and that uh, Michael Schur was um, using fairly ramped up hyperbole uh, regarding to uh, the success of this attack uh, as he wanted to uh, frame it 100% success, despite the fact that there were no bodies. In fact, he said, it's unfortunate that there were no bodies. Um, anyway, you'll hear that in the Media, Media Matters interview in a minute uh coming up after that we will have um a couple pieces um one with um morris uh, colonel morris davis and uh, it will be from a new n y u debate uh with um two people who were um um there to discuss uh, i guess uh, a counter view of the military tribunal court uh, and the uh, military commissions i'm saying i mean and um um Then I had an interview with him yesterday regarding uh, uh, Guantanamo and trying to look at, one, what was the frame of mind going into Guantanamo Bay before September 2001? Uh, We didn't have this system. So how did that change? And then what is the continuance under Obama? Because clearly... Last year, right after the inauguration, uh, President Obama signed an executive order and made very clear to all of us that he intended to close Guantanamo Bay. One year later, still open. We have detainees still sitting there languishing that have been cleared. Um, it, it, they're being ruled enemy combatants. They're being uh, told. In fact, the ju- a judge recently, federal judge, has said you have to release one guy in the... Um, The Obama administration is uh, simply going to continue to appeal his holding. So, anyway, you'll hear in the interview with uh, Colonel Davis, we may have a call in from uh, Andy Worthington out of the U.K. to discuss uh, the Cotter case and uh, the Slahi case and some other cases before us. We'll go over some headlines for this last week. It's been a very, very active week. And uh, we will have um, also Jason Leopold will be on the show in order to talk about BP Halliburton, Cheney, the oversight process, and lots more. So I hope you enjoy the show. I hope that you find it informative. You can visit us at veracityradio.com. You can also find us on um, uh, Facebook at uh, Facebook. uh, Look up Cheney Watch. That's kind of the main project we work with here. And um, you can also email us at veracityradio at gmail.com what you have to say, some ideas, input, and um, you know what's on your mind. Uh, if we get a chance to wire in calls, I'm still actually kind of tweaking the studio here a little bit. It's been a couple of years since we did some radio. And if, uh, if we get a chance to put some calls into the board, we will, and we'll let you know, and we'll announce a number on the air. In the meantime, you're hearing some CyberZen sound engine in the background. I'm going to let you go back to some music for a minute before I turn into uh, a Media Matters interview here for you. You're listening to veracityradio.com I also also want to take a point uh, to uh, a moment to point out that that was Howard Zinn that you heard right before I came on. Howard Zinn a uh, wonderful historian, in my opinion. Um, if you want to dispute his narrative of American history, that's okay, but I think it's important that we have a counter narrative to, as he put it, the orthodoxy. And uh, we lost him a few years back, but um, recorded this, uh, this speech of his in 2003. So that was what you heard at the beginning. And you might hear some other tidbits here and there after we go through the show. Now on with Media Matters. i joined on the line now by Brian Frederick of Media Matters. How are you today, Brian?
2: Good, Chris. Glad to be with you.
1: Good, good. Now, first up, before we get into uh, the topic I want to kind of go over, will you tell me a little bit about who Media Matters is and uh, what does your organization do?
2: Yeah, Media Matters is a, an organization that started six years ago, actually. It's our anniversary, um, and uh, it's our, our specific goal is to monitor and correct conservative misinformation in the media. And so we're a a 24/7, seven days a week uh, operation. We really we try and monitor all types of media uh, on online, uh, the television, radio, and uh, and just look for uh, misinformation and and falsehoods and myths that uh, conservatives are pushing. And and, and, you know we we provide the truth. We say here's what uh, these people say, and then uh, here's what the truth is.
1: Okay, so let me ask you a question. I don't really necessarily automatically qualify as liberal or conservative, but I I think I understand what conservative misinformation is. Well, why would it be more common in maybe conservative uh, media than whatever the opposite of that would be or another? Yeah, film?
2: you know, I mean, uh, you know, a lot of people assume that there's uh, you know both sides to an issue, uh, but what our founder has done actually um, is uh, he's shown that there's this sort of. Uh, network, this infrastructure that traffics in this sort of misinformation. It starts with right-wing think tanks, and uh, it, it ends up on uh, blogs and radio and all the way to, uh, you know, basically Fox News uh, is the is the primary outlet. But, you know, there's an organized effort um, to sort of uh, spread these uh Sort of talking points that, that doesn't exist on the left. And so this organization, you know, is really aimed at correcting misinformation. And because so much of that is on the right, that's why we focus on it.
1: Okay, so I want to start off with the, uh, the clip at the beginning of this week with a former CIA agent, um, I believe he was only an analyst, um, Michael Schuer. And he appeared on Fox News to discuss the uh, attempted car fire to to discuss this. Let me play this clip for our audience and then uh if you give me a reaction to this. He called it a
3: uh jaw he expected a jaw breaking blow uh to US cities. Is this a jaw breaking blow? Is this considered in, in any respect a success? Oh, it's a, it's a 100% success except there wasn't any bombs. The amount of money the I mean any corpses. The amount of money we're going to spend on investigating this. The amount of money we're going to spend on putting more people on the streets, to, more policemen, and the, the, the impact this will have on civil liberties and privacy is, is 100% success for them across the board. But Michael, it didn't work. Think it,
4: I mean, it, the police Oh, it did it. work, ma'am. It
3: absolutely worked. It, it, it worked in every sense except for corpses. Uh, it, it is, uh, it is uh, you have to remember. That the goal of these people is to help lead America to bankruptcy. Corpses are nice; they make a lot of news. But the, what what this is going to cost us is not significantly different than if there was corpses. This is a very effective uh, attack, even if it failed. So you, the fact that they got the pathfinder into the city to 45th and Broadway, you say is a success. You say the NYPD was beaten. It was it was dead beat. And that's not, a, that's not a criticism of them. They didn't know it was coming. The bomb didn't go off because the fellow was, a, it was amateurs, amateurish at putting it together. Uh, a pro, the bomb goes off, and everybody now uh, is, would be blaming the NYPD for having failed. Uh, so it's just a matter of did it go off or did it not. But the impact of the thing, Brian, the three goals of these people regarding the United States is to help lead us to bankruptcy to spread out our intelligence, our military, and police forces to the point where they, we don't have reserves and aren't flexible, and to create as much dissension in the United States as possible. But,
4: but, Michael, I mean, it's so hard to hear you say that this was actually a failure, because in a city of millions of people plus millions of tourists, what could the police have done differently to thwart this before it, the I, Pathfinder got to Times Square?
3: I don't, I don't think they could have, ma'am. I think that's, that's a key point. But But, the police would have taken the fall if the right. bomb had gone off. The fault lies in the federal government. A federal government that has its head in the sand has for the last twenty years right. and has not been square with the american people
1: so what 's your reaction to um, mr sheer 's comment what 's incorrect about what he said
2: well uh, you know it 's it's actually absolutely ridiculous for him to be uh, using this sort of rhetoric um, you know in response to to a situation like this and uh, I think that uh, and especially to blame the federal government which is what he does uh you know sures big thing is that uh, the government isn't uh, isn't acting uh, strong enough to fight terrorism and uh he he almost in a sense seems to be rooting uh, for some sort of a a uh, a terrorist attack to take place so that the government uh responds in the way that he thinks is uh, uh you know appropriate. I mean he he's a guy who said that the only chance that we have as a country right now is for Osama bin Laden to detonate a major uh weapon in the United States. I mean that's, you know, just absolutely absurd. And uh so he you know, he, he's a very hawkish guy and uh but it's not just, you know, that he's hawkish. He you know, he he has delusions of you know, uh, what the best route is in order to to fight terrorism, that, you know, we need to sort of, I guess, take a punch uh, to punch back harder or something like this, which, you know, any rational person would be like, well, no, we obviously don't want to uh, to get hit with a terrorist attack.
1: Here's an example. This was from uh, the one you just referenced from uh, June 30th, um, 2009, on the Glenn Beck show, where uh, Michael Schuer responded to what he felt we need to get our act straight, I guess.
3: So um, you have seen this. Do you really honestly believe that we have come to a place to where those very senior people in the highest offices of the land, Congress and uh, the White House, really will not do the the right thing in the end, that they won't see the error of their ways? No, sir, they will not. Not... Now, the only chance we have as a country right now is for Osama bin Laden to, de- to deploy and, de- and detonate a major weapon in the United States because it's going to take a grassroots, bottom-up pressure because these politicians prize their office, prize the, pra- the praise of the media and the Europeans. Only- it- it's-, it's an absurd situation again. Only Osama... Can execute an attack which will force Americans to demand that their government protect them effectively, consistently, and with as much violence as necessary. Which is why I was thinking this weekend that would be the, if I were him, that would be the last thing I would do right now.
1: So clearly here, he seems to imply that unless we have an atomic weapon detonated in our country, that we're not taking it serious. Would you say that the budget that this country expends right now shows anything less than a serious effort?
2: Well no I mean you know I think uh I think sure and and, and others are overlook the, the successes that the Obama administration has had in the war on terrorism um and you know I, I just don't think you know I don't think that he will ever be satisfied with uh you know with with the level of uh support that uh, our anti-terrorism efforts get. And, uh, you know, I can't give you any facts and figures off the top of my head, but I know that, uh, you know, there's, it, it, it's ridiculous to, to imply that uh, the Obama administration isn't doing enough uh, to fight terrorism.
1: Now, we see uh, Mr. Schuer uh, for instance, that was on the Glenn Beck show. The one from Monday was on Fox and Friends. But aside from Fox, uh, are there other um, channels or uh, media sources you, you see his uh, commentary appearing in?
2: Uh, yeah, you know, he uh, he actually at one point was a CBS analyst. I'm not sure if he technically still is, but CBS tends to uh, turn to him for Osama bin Laden uh, uh, information. Where he says the stuff that we tend to clip um, is, is on Fox News, and I think that's because, you know, he feels a little bit more uh, comfortable making, you know, these sorts of inflammatory uh, comments there uh, because there is such a, a sort of atmosphere of... Uh, of uh, anti Obama uh, attacks over uh, over terrorism over there.
1: Uh, can you think of some other people besides him uh, that? And, and I want to see if we can separate the punditry class. For instance, the Frank Gaffneys. Uh, you know, there are a few people out there. But can you think of anyone who uh, had worked in the federal administration? I mean, he worked for the CIA. That's uh, pretty much the federal government. Uh, but do you do you see some other people that uh, these networks pull up to? Um, I guess, exploit their experience to promote these um, these thoughts?
2: Oh, well, I mean, certainly, uh, well, not specifically with regards to terrorism, but certainly Fox News has become uh, the Bush administration in exile. I mean, you have mm-hmm. uh, everybody from uh, Karl Rove to Dana Perino to... Um, uh... you know there, there's numerous uh... bush administration officials that are now over at fox news uh... you know uh... michael bolton uh... yeah and and all they do is uh... you know sit there and take the the perspective of what it's like to be an administration official and you know that they have this experience and that obviously the obama administration doesn't know what they're doing and uh... And so, yeah, I mean, uh, if there was ever any proof that uh, Fox is, you know, strictly serving right now as a, as a branch of the Republican Party, it's, you know, that you have all these officials from the Bush administration, uh, you know, sitting there trashing Obama on a daily basis.
1: I think you met recess appointment. Uh, John Bolton, not Michael Bolton. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. Right. You could right. even use Josh Bolton and pretty get, get pretty the, close. The
2: one with the mustache, yeah. not the hair. The, the
1: indisputable <laughs> mustache. He does have quite a mustache. Um, there were a couple of things, uh, uh, reference to Mondays, um, uh, well, I guess it was Saturday nights, where the um, supposed right, I like to say supposed, because I don't really know who is right and who's not. I just have to let them self-identify. Were they kind of quiet for a couple of days in uh, in this?
2: Yeah, you know, they, they, they certainly were. And, uh, you know, as soon as it was determined that he was um, uh, a Muslim, it was immediately... Uh, you know that became the the sole talking point on the right, and uh, in fact, you had even had people like uh, CNN contributor Eric Erickson, who runs uh, RedState.com, uh, complaining that you know that news media reports aren't using Muslim and Islam in in, in talking about Shazad uh, often enough. You know. And uh, you know you have like hate hate radio guys like Neil Bort saying uh, you know he's a Muslim shocker who would have believed it you know mm-hmm. um, but uh, you know uh, actually and this is something that um, another organization Think Progress um, uh, pointed out was that uh, you know when when it was when when they determined who had alerted the police um, who was uh, I believe a Senegalese um, immigrant uh, a Muslim immigrant that he was the one that alerted the police you know you didn't see any reporting that uh, you know this uh this muslim immigrant had uh had been the one to tip off the police and so Uh, Yeah, I mean, certainly. I've actually
1: seen him on CNN, but yeah, again, no mention of any of his additional background, which would be uh, ironic.
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but you know, I mean, so immediately the right wing, uh, uh, you know, ran with claims that uh, he was a registered Democrat.
1: Oh, okay. So there's uh, that was one of my next questions. So tell me about this registered Democrat. Right. Y'all had well, a yeah, yeah. So uh, uh,
2: some of the right wing blogs, as they tend to do, it's just sort of an echo chamber over there. One one blog repeats something, and then it just becomes, you know, every blog picks it up, and eventually it ends up on Rush, Rush Limbaugh, which is exactly what happened in uh, this case. Rush Limbaugh. Yeah, and uh, so they, you know, they said that Rush that uh, that uh, Faisal Shahzad was a registered Democrat and uh so actually here at media matters we called um you know the 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 offices in Connecticut where he had lived um uh you know the, the offices of, of the registrar and asked if he was even registered to vote uh and uh he wasn't so you know the the idea that he was a registered democrat was just a total fabrication and not only that they also claimed that uh you know that he was uh, a donor he may, he may be a donor to uh an Obama donor, and so we actually looked at uh, at Open Secrets uh, as a is a good resource. Wonderful we looked at, resource. Uh, we looked at uh, various resources and saw that you know, hey, he he he's revealed or he's uh, he's given absolutely no money to anybody. So mm-hmm. uh, you know, two two claims right there that uh, just fell apart.
1: So uh, let's look at how um, these. I I choose to call them memes in a way. They're they basically are memes, small little thoughts to run around. But how do these ideas wind up coming out of the mouths of and I'll just put a you know, someone specific I've seen do it, uh Anderson Cooper, who's mm-hmm. not Fox News. How do mm. how do these guys on these other <coughs> networks, including MSNBC, just running completely contrary sometimes. How how does that um, lend agreement to yeah that or do, would you say it lends agreement? Maybe I'm Well, yeah, I mean
2: that's 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 textbook um, uh, sort of agenda setting. You mm-hmm. know, where uh, uh, the, the the right wing will you know decree that something is a, a huge issue. Take Acorn, for instance. Um, Uh, It was a perfect example where you had, like, uh, a couple different uh, offices that were, you know, featured in this video. Suddenly ACORN became such a huge story, um, and Fox News was just running it daily all the time. And so suddenly then the other media feel compelled um, to discuss this. In some sense, because Fox News is getting great ratings, and so they want to, you know, uh, I guess in a sense, emulate, or or, or they think that they're doing something. So they sort of follow this this story, too. But then, you know, also, you know, you have uh, White House correspondents asking, you know, from Fox, asking the, uh, the president and uh, asking Gibbs about these sorts of issues. That's how the other networks end up having to discuss them. And yeah, I mean, it is what I've always thought was very disappointing is that uh, the, the members of of the media that aren't with Fox News tend to be very defensive about Fox News and their role uh, instead of castigating them and you know calling them out for what they do which is essentially debase the entire profession and in a sense you know they they you know they actually work against themselves by supporting Fox News because you know, this sort of journalism is what Fox News sells and, you know, these sorts of this sort of propaganda is what sells. And if these other networks engage in it, all they're doing is ultimately helping Fox News with their own ratings. So, you know, ho- hopefully someday uh, these organizations will realize that it's in their best interest to to, to sort of call out this misinformation. And I, and I think MSNBC, uh, to their to their credit, has realized that, you know, by do by calling out some of this stuff that that can help boost their own ratings. So,
1: for one, I appreciate the emails I get. I have uh, whatever y'all send out, you know, and um, I can go back and research uh, very specific claims and um, uh, directly find that video clip or a document uh, if it's coming from a newspaper clip, and I find it very helpful. So, what do you think that the average viewer or listener or reader, what what can they use to help? You know, sniff out whether or not this is what's happening in a piece that they're um, they're watching or listening to. Do you have any signs or any thoughts on it?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, uh, oftentimes, you know, it's just a simple case of, well, yeah, that sounds kind of crazy. <laughs> mm-hmm. That you know, especially when you're watching uh, 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 Glenn Beck, you know. Uh, well,
1: perf- using Glenn perf- Beck, though, actually, let me, yeah, let me let me qualify this a little bit better. There are times where I can watch these these things, and I find myself. Kind of nodding, and now I, I'm a little bit more cynical. So I know there's mm-hmm. something I'm not really nodding with. That's underneath this accepting package that I'm being handed. Uh, I don't want to pay more taxes. I don't want to. Um, sure, I don't sure. want to be unsafe. You know. So yeah, so, yeah
2: you know, the, I, I guess I, get, I, I guess I would say that. Um, I guess I would say that uh, the problem with the right-wing media, the right-wing noise machine, is, is, is what we've called it, the Republican noise machine, is that we don't have a substantive debate on issues that are important, on you know, on uh, on terrorism, on the financial regulation bill, on paying more taxes, on uh, on all these sorts of issues, because instead, you know, uh, they're they're. There's a sort of crazy paranoia, and this especially happened right after Obama took office, that suddenly things had shifted so much that it was a radical administration and it was a socialism and, you know, it was fascism and, uh, you know, really, I mean... Uh, you know, people just, you know, they, 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 they like you said, they don't want to pay more taxes. They don't want to, you know, they may not support universal health care. That's fine. Let's have a rational debate about it and not imply that, you know, by supporting health care for all, we're, you know, taking over, uh, you know, the, the administration is taking over the government and that we're all, you know, we're not going to get, the end of life care that we need and you know granny's not going to get her kidney and she's going to die you know that sort of rhetoric uh really clouds and 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 muddies the uh the debate and so I, i guess i would say that the number one thing that people could do would be to learn to see through that and recognize the sort of uh reactionary and uh almost paranoid rhetoric that, that exists out there, and to look at the underlying issues. I mean, there are certainly great conservative, um, you know, a, a, a few good conservative Give, give, give me commenters. an example of
1: someone you think that's a responsible conservative uh, voice.
2: Well, you know, um, and I have my certainly my issues with him, but um, a guy like David Fromm mm-hmm. has uh, decided that, you know, he, he, he is interested in, in the conservative movement, uh, maintaining its sense of uh, you know uh, you know maintaining its, its sense of uh, what it was and not becoming this sort of crazy. I mean anybody that's uh, you know in the Rush Limbaugh, Glenn Beck, um you know those sorts of uh, those sorts of commentators. Uh, that's not where you want to be looking for for good conservative uh, information. Um, you know it 's really hard because uh for me to think of that because uh uh you know i I tend to deal with the guys that aren't doing that sure. so often but i but but I would say that that there are they are out there it's it's not I would that's, actually uh, say
1: that that 's a very valid point is that um, certain people who are loudest or
2: more intense <laughs> exactly they
1: they they take up all the oxygen in the room and you can have only two of them in a room of a exactly. people. exactly
2: and the and the two loudest guys uh in the conservative movement right now. Is uh, Glenn Beck and Rush Limbaugh are, um, you know, the uh, you know the two the two primary voices, and they're only interested in uh, in making money. I mean, you know, Rush Limbaugh and Glenn Beck are really just they they recognize how to entertain an audience. They recognize how to make, uh, you know, get ratings. And mm-hmm. uh, although I should say Glenn Beck's ratings are down a third in the last yeah. year, but so um, let's talk,
1: let's go to that in, here in one second. I want to add something here that what we're addressing here for the listeners is what. Um, Veracity Radio will have a segment frequently on uh, logical fallacies, and the logical fallacy we're uh, illustrating here is what's called the spotlight fallacy. And the spotlight fallacy is when, a, whether it's because it's loud or just some, in some way loud, visually or otherwise, we accept that to be the norm when, in fact, it's not the norm. <laughs> it's just loud. Um, and when we, uh, when we try to assume that, for instance, uh, you know, I've had people argue with me that the Tea Party people are not all racist. Well, that might be true. But the problem is, is some of the loudest members in there are right, espousing right. very racist
2: right. uh,
1: and extremist uh, discussion. So if they're only 5%, 2%, it's hard to tell when it's that extreme. So um, let's look at the money, though, just a little bit. How does Fox generate this much traffic to its, uh, its uh, TV channel and, and through its news conduit? How, how does it gain such a following? Compared to the other somewhat reliable if you want to call them that, but somewhat reliable media
2: well you know I think that uh, I think that they've they've established themselves as such a brand name for uh, you know one uh, one party mm-hmm. i mean there's two parties in America, Republicans and Democrats, and if one news outlet is identified as the news outlet of one party, mm-hmm. uh, you know that's where you know Republicans in general are going to turn for their news. And uh, you don't see that on the on the uh, with the other networks. They're not interested in being the democratic voice of the left. But uh, you know, apparently, you know MSNBC to 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 a little bit has, has has become more and more interested in that. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean you still have Joe Scarborough, which people overlook. Sure. You still have three three hours in the morning of Joe Scarborough. You know, uh, and you have you ten know, hours but- a
1: day of Pat Buchanan
2: yeah yeah exactly exactly i mean i don't know what pat buchanan is still doing on the air but um you know there's an example for you of a a reasonable conservative i think is um is joe scarborough um he still he you know he still makes occasional comments that we sort of uh say wow that's not really (laughs) that's not really right or that's sort of inflammatory but for the most part he's a you know he's a reasonable conservative so uh, you know, MSNBC has that for three hours in the morning. So the idea that they're strictly a liberal network is uh,
1: if we if, some people may forget. I, I have a very extensive video collection, so I don't. But uh, they used to have Michael Savage um, as one. Yeah,
2: of those yeah, absolutely. Back around um, 2000 yeah. to 2003. Yeah, yeah, and he's the, I think he's the number 3 uh, uh conservative uh radio host in in the country. Number right. 3 listened to, period. Um and you know, he's 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 crazy.
1: <laughs> so since January for instance though, let's look at Glenn Beckett. He had um booming ratings. He was really kind of gaining and then what happened between January and now what's uh,
2: You know what? I you know what my theory is is I think that I think that people are just sort of getting tired of the the novelty has worn off. Um, you know, he, he tends to use the same people, the same names over and over. It's Van Jones, it's Acorn, it's, um, you know, SEIU. And he just uses his chalkboard and and draws (laughs) some circles and it's all linked up to everybody. And I think, I think people are, you know, and, and he also does this, you know, thing where he's like, and and you you will not believe what I'm going to unveil next week. Next ah, week is going to be sideshow the greatest. Carny. You know,
1: Carney talk.
2: Yeah, exactly. You know, he is he is P.T. Barnum, and okay. uh, right. I think that that's starting to wear off, and uh, uh, people are realizing that. Uh, and how has know, that
1: affected his bottom line? And what's what's happened?
2: Well, I mean, I you know, Rupert Murdoch was asked if he's just basically subsidizing Glenn Beck because Glenn Beck's had over a hundred advertisers leave him. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, since uh, some some organizations started a boycott against him, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, I mean, I think they've you know I think they've got to be hurting. You look at the ads, the, the the companies that advertise on his site now, and it's uh you know it's gold companies, it's things for I guess he must have a really elderly uh, audience because it's you know things for for the elderly, um, and that's it. You know, yeah, there's in, not infomercial
1: style. You know, yeah, yeah, there's not. The
2: uh, yeah, there's just not a lot of. Uh, Serious uh, corporate money behind him right now. All right. So. Uh,
1: well, you know, I want to thank you for your time, Brian. I hope you'll come back and uh, talk with us again sometime about some of the events that are going on, and um, we really appreciate what you guys do at Media Matters.
2: Hey, anytime. Keep up the good work that you do. Okay. You take care.
1: Have a good day. Thank you. I'm joined on the line now by Brian Frederick of Media Matters. How are you today, Brian?
2: Good, Chris. Glad to be with you.
1: Good. Now, wait a minute. We've already been joined on the line by brian frederick that is in fact just to repeat of the first segment so thank you for listening i hope you're enjoying veracity radio this evening we're going to come up next with some uh a debate like i said a discussion at new york uh or nyu new york university with uh colonel morris davis discussing um guantanamo and the military well not as much guantanamo as the military commission process he's discussing with uh anthony romero of the aclu and um uh, Joshua Dredel. Um and so I'm going to play this for you and then we'll play the um, sorry, hold on, I'm trying to find this audio for you and then we'll play the interview with Colonel Morris Davis and uh, follow that up with uh, Jason Leopold discussing BP so as I set this up for you uh, I'll tell you what, I'll give you a little bit of music and uh, get you set up here You're listening to veracityradio.com.